live from the JLE in London. Join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. Welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you very much again for joining us in this series on chinuch, on education, on child rearing. If you could just very quickly, in a couple of seconds, summarize last week's, and we left in the middle. Thank you. Sure, thanks for hosting this program again. Yes, in our last session, we spoke about the principle that child raising is based on an aphorism of our sages, which is let your left hand always push away and your right hand draw near. We said this is the balance between the left hand, namely discipline, comes first, set up a framework of rules and discipline and security, and the right hand is drawing near, that is the sense of love. Last session, we spoke about some of the rules governing rules, how to set them up, what the psychological and emotional benefits are of that, and we explored some of the theme of the left hand. Let's talk in this session a little bit about the other side of the equation, namely the right hand or love. It's to be noted that when we say let the left hand push away and the right hand draw near, picture this, I had a wonderful teacher in this area, Rav Simcha Wasserman, one of the great educators of the last generation, he used to put it like this, this unfortunately is a podcast so our listeners cannot see us, but I asked them to picture this, imagine your left hand, imagine you have two left hands, you have an object held between your right and left hands, and both your hands are left, so you push them away, what do you do, don't change the object, you simply distance it, Two right hands, you simply pull the object towards you, but no change. When your left hand pushes and your right hand pulls, you turn the object right around. And that is what is changing the psychological and emotional structure of your child when they experience that rich balance between very, very clear and firm authority and discipline on the one hand, and yet a very clear sense of overriding love, so deep and so rich that they become clearly aware that the discipline is also for the love. What I didn't mention last time, and I think it bears mentioning, is that when we talk about strict discipline, we mean quite extreme. Of course, it has to be socially appropriate and fitting the context, but to illustrate this, let me tell you an incident that occurred in the life of Rasim Chavassaman himself. And as I say, although he was childless, he was the authority in his age on child raising. My brother-in-law, who was his doctor, once asked him with very great respect, he said, Ravassaman, how did you become the go-to person in the Torah world? on education when, with all due respect, you never had an experience, you never had any children. Normally a person becomes a great expert through their own experience. Rav Simcha looked at them with that amazingly kindly face and he says, of course I had experience. I'm not talking about how I raised my children, I'm talking about how my great father, Rabbi Khan Vassaman, and his wife raised me. So really the message we were getting from the great Torah home of Rav and Rebetzin Khan Vassaman from that generation. Listen to the story, which is almost unbelievable, and I say in advance, this is not for you and me. But there's a message here that is definitely relevant. Rabassaman said when he was 10 years old, he was sitting in the front room of his house in Baranovich in Eastern Europe, where they lived, and his little brother David, must have been about four years old at the time, was playing in the room. The only two that survived the war in the family. He said the door opened and his mother walked in with a little honey. Now in that generation, honey was an unbelievable treat. You're talking about families that survived on a few pieces of toast and a couple of cups of tea a day. You're not talking about... Eastern Europe was extremely, extremely poverty-stricken. There was no candies and sweets and things like that. 
His mother walked in with a little honey. They had a rule in that home. Rabbi Hanan Vassman and his wife had a rule that if a child ever asked for something, they did not get it. Can you imagine such a rule? If you asked, you did not get. I asked Rabbi Vassman, why did they have a rule like that? So extreme. He said, my parents wanted us to know that if you're not getting it, it's because we don't have. Now, I know there was more to it than that because he told us this in the context of a discussion on discipline. That was their rule. Obviously, this is not appropriate for our generation. His mother walked in with a little honey, and his brother David at age four knew that if he asked, he would not get. What did he do? He drew a chair up to the table, sat down, and made a loud bracha she'akol, a loud blessing that you make on, the, on eating things like honey. Robertson Vassman went to the kitchen and brought him a glass of water. <laughs> now, our parents today would be incapable of that. If a child did that today, the mother would melt in a puddle of emotion and give him the honey. But, of course, that home turned out to Robertson Vassman. Now, again, that type of a rule is inappropriate for our soft and vulnerable generation. But the point is that the rules need to be appropriately firm and require of the child to raise himself or herself into a new space of maturity. Let's talk about the love. One of the mistakes we make in our generation is that not that we don't feel love for our children, we often don't express it enough. There are many reasons for this. One common reason in families is the parents assume that the child realizes how much they loved. And very often, unfortunately, the message is not coming across. One of the reasons it doesn't come across is that parents are very busy. So very often the parent thinks, well, look, I'm, I'm out all day earning a living and stressing and sweating for the family. They assume that the child realizes that that's what they're doing, but the child, the child may not. And therefore, sometimes because we are busy, we don't have the, the time to spend that quality time with children. So they learn about the love. And secondly, we often take it for granted and don't tell them. And therefore, it's very healthy for a parent to express it openly. Just living a loving marriage, it needs to be expressed. Now, Rav Mena, you and I know that men are sometimes a little uh, squirm a little bit and you find it a bit cringeworthy to have to say how much you love your wife, but it's necessary. Easier with children. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And with some wives, believe me, it's easier than others. But be that as it may, be that as it may, you need to show it. You know, there's a wonderful notion of the five languages of love. And everyone has their own, see, for some it's gifts, for some it's touch, for some it's respect, for some it's discussion. A child also has a language of love. But it's important that there is a language of love. And therefore, one of the things a parent needs to do is make it clear to the child, I'm doing this because I love you. I work hard all day and whatever it is I do, not when talking about giving guilt trips to the child, but you need to express to them how much you love them. When they're young, they need physical affection. Rav Scheinberg used to say that it was very important that the child should always, when they come home, you come home, they should get a kiss of a greeting. Of course, we're not talking about teenagers. Teenagers would rather die <laughs> and be kissed by them. I love giving my children brochas on a Friday night, blessings on Friday night, I get to kiss them. You know, not every teenager wants to be, you know, to be kissed. But the point is that whatever the language of love is, it needs to be manifest very clearly so the children know that they are loved, whether it's a few minutes at bedtime, where you're close to them, or whatever it is that is the message. It's more important to give quality time than quantity. I should point out it's important in marriage as well. The Jewish default in marriage is that quality is more important than quantity. In fact, the Talmud actually speaks out in detail how much time a husband needs to spend with his wife, technically depending on his profession and so forth and so on. But the point is that quality time in marriage, it's much better to have relatively infrequent, high-quality, intense times together than more time being together of lesser quality. And therefore, it is important to give their child the quality time where they know they are loved. One very good piece of advice. Should that be every child on his own? I was just, you took the words out of my oh. mouth. Right 
one of the important tools here is to plan so each child can get their own quality time. I would suggest that if you're dealing, let's say, is the typical Jewish mother, she's got 11 or 12 children, <laughs> and it's hard to show them all love at the same time, make an arrangement with your neighbor. She's got eight children. So why don't you get her to take seven of yours to the zoo, you know, while you spend time with that four-year-old who needs your quality time. I'm being a little facetious, but, and the next day, you spend time with another child, depending on their schedules and their needs, age appropriate, and so forth and so on. There's no reason why you cannot say to a child, not now, absolutely. Friday afternoon, the mother's cooking. She's doing five things at once. You know, it's an amazing Jewish mother's talent to do five things at once. Man's totally incapable of doing that. Rabbi Man, if you leave a husband babysitting, the child's life's in danger, <laughs> you know, because they get distracted. Yeah. Mother can do five things at once and be totally aware of what's going on with the child. She's doing five things at once. She's cooking. She's talking on the phone. And a three-year-old is tugging at her skirt, desperately needing to tell the mother something of cosmic importance. The right response is to say, not now. Emma's busy. Absolutely. Why not? But then you make time. And when you do have a moment, you get down on your knees and you look in the child's eyes and you say, tell me about it. So that you don't have to break your schedule for the child. But there must be a time made for intense love at the level of the child. And it takes preparation, as I say. Practically, would you say weekly? No, I think it's a question of judgment. There's some families where, unfortunately, real good quality time can only be given a few times a year on a vacation, maybe, or something like that. So you break it up and you do whatever you can. Shabbat's fantastic. Let me put in a word here about orthodox observance of Shabbat. You know, in a world where the media run away with us, when the palm of every hand is an intensely intrusive, you know, enemy, what time do we have for ourselves, let alone for our families? Shabbos is an amazing opportunity. You know, everything else is put aside, and you simply do nothing other than actually relate to your family. Amazing opportunity. Let me refer again to marriage. You know, most families and most marriages are so frenetically busy nowadays, people pass like ships in the night. Here on Shabbat, you can look into your wife's eyes over the candles, remind yourself of her name, you know, <laughs> before you fall asleep with your nose in the soup. You know, what could be more wonderful? Sit around the table. Each child gets to interact and to, to share with you, and there's nothing else to do. It's a fantastic opportunity. I would highly recommend strictly orthodox observance of Shabbat, even for the least religious people, because it's social, cultural, emotional, family values beyond measure, apart from its deeper meaning. Another point to know is that this often takes good preparation. What would you advise a young woman about to get married? What's the most important gift she should insist on? The answer is a big freezer. So that she can make that fantastic Shabbat meal, put it in the secret compartments at the bottom of the freezer. And that tragic Friday, that ridiculous Friday where everything goes wrong and you know some child needs stitches and, and someone else caught his hand in the door and who knows what. You've got a cordon bleu. Shabbos, you can put it out on the table and everything's <laughs> fine. Sunday morning, you cook it again and you freeze it. <laughs> so it takes a little preparation to be a good mother. If you're the type of mother who hits the ground running in the morning in a panic of activity, that does not bode well for your family's psychological health. Now, Rabbi Men, I'm sure most of our listeners, our lady mother listeners, I'm sure most of them wake at five in the morning. I'm sure they do their healthy yoga, watching the sunrise. Of course, eat the healthy muesli, and then with a loving, calm touch, wake each. Well, that doesn't always happen that way. But it takes preparation and prior consideration. How would you structure your life in such a way that the child gets the message of love? So, in summary, what we've said is that, first of all, is a left hand pushing away, setting up the framework of discipline, bearing in mind always that the rules need to be expressed as functions of love, and then there is the main exercise of child raising, which is that I love you and that's why I'm investing all this time in you. 
and give them what they need, age appropriate, conferring husband and wife so there's no disagreement between them. Not that they both have to function the same way. No, one can be more disciplined, one can be more loving. But as long as the child is getting both hands at the same time. Let me add one more thought, and then we'll give it over to our listeners to send us their questions. What do you want the child to be? You are using the methodology of your left hand and your right hand. That's what you're doing. What is the result you're looking for? And quite amazingly, the answer is a left and a right hand. You want the child to have exactly those two qualities, consideration and concern. Consideration means left hand, self-discipline, to be considerate of others, and the right hand, concern, love, a balanced and healthy personality, which is what your child should have, requires only two qualities of character. Left hand, which is discipline and self-control, we call that consideration. And the second is love and affection and caring about others, we call that concern. All the rest is peripheral. Your child does not need, parents think child need the essential activities like, you know, ballet dancing on horseback and underwater polo and, you know, that's not essential. What is essential for your child to have is simply those two qualities of character. Mother sleeping, should not feel well, don't make a noise. Consideration. She wakes up and she needs something, take her a cup of tea. When you're a good neighbor, you need to know when your neighbors need you to turn a blind eye and give them privacy and when they need you to walk in with a cup of soup. And therefore, those are the basic modes of a healthy personality. Not interfering, consideration, staying away, discipline, and yet engaging where needed. A husband and a wife. Each need to know your spouse sometimes needs private time and give them the consideration. On the other hand, they need a hug and a manifestation of love. Those are the two modes of a healthy personality. And therefore, long before we consider the peripheral issues, the specifics of a child's personality, nurturing their specific talents, that's a long subject. Perhaps we can talk about that in our next session, how you bring out the individuality of a child. But before we get to the child's individuality, we talk about two major pillars on which their character is built. The left hand, namely being considerate and limiting themselves for the good of others, and also the side of engagement. A good husband who tells you, I'm a wonderful husband, considerate of my wife. I've never punched her in the nose and kicked her in the shins. That's a good start of our manner, but it's not enough. Hmm. You need not only the consideration, but also the acts of love and concern as well. And therefore, in final summary, I would say, the methods we use to educate our children are first and foremost, a framework of rules and structure. And using that framework, we manifest as much love as possible. And what we are looking for them to develop is characters who can judiciously manifest their own two sides of love and discipline in the world. Thank you. Just because we have a few minutes left, can I ask you to talk a bit about discipline changing through the ages? I mean, I'm quite a young fellow, but when I was growing up, the wooden ruler was at the side, staring at us grimly, and it was used. And for thousands of years, that was the mode of discipline. And we're in the, you know, the first time where everything has changed and no one's allowed to hit. How has that manifested? Yes, this is an interesting subject. It's true. I was raised in a world similar to yours where we were disciplined. When I was at primary school, I was wrapped over the knuckles with an 18-inch ruler, as you say. At high school, I was beaten with a cane. I don't mind admitting. We used to have to bend down over the headmaster's desk and get whipped with a cane. I personally, on occasion, would wear two sets of underwear to school. And uh, <laughs> we would go and look at the marks afterwards, indeed. And I'd venture to say, Sarah Manor, that's why you and I turned out men. And this generation's characters are wimps and nerds. But be that as it may, you can't you can't urge that today. Today, if you do that, if you've even come anywhere near that, you'll be arrested. Let me point out to you that today, obviously, you cannot hit a child. You can't kiss a child either. 
Today, you cannot discipline a child with a spank and you can't put your arm around them or hug them either because you'll be arrested. So our hands are really tied today. Again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you'd be physically affectionate with children in an era fraught with abuse issues. And I'm not saying that we should be hitting children either. So you are quite right. Our methods have changed through the years. Today, you are much more limited in what you can do. But I point out to you that along with the changes through time, probably children have become more vulnerable as well. There was a certain stoicism and a certain adjustment to the discipline that possibly characterized an earlier age. It was expected and people could take it. Today, self-esteem is particularly fragile. Perhaps it's a phase we're going through. At all ages, we see that children are suffering from lack of self-esteem. Many teachers will tell you that it's due to the media exposure and the hyped-up sense of appearing perfect on the media and the psychological bullying that takes place. That may be true. But in my own personal experience, I think that self-esteem issues are an issue. Today, a feature of our world is that many teenagers and very young adults are on medication for anxiety and depression. No question about that. A young lady told me quite recently, she said she was applying for a seminary in Israel. And the rabbi came to her local community to interview girls. And she takes a medicine for anxiety. She said that she felt she just could not, in all good faith, withhold that information from the rabbi. So at the meeting, and she made a very good impression at the meeting, she said to the rabbi, I think I ought to tell you that, you know, I do take a message for anxiety, and I know it means you probably won't accept me for your sim. The rabbi said to a young lady, if I didn't take girls on anti-anxiety medication, I wouldn't have anyone in my sim. So as many education authorities will tell you today, people have baggage. So yes, the methods have changed. We need much more love, much more tolerance much more nurturing of the fragile egos and self-esteem. That is, that is all quite true. Nevertheless, there still needs to be a framework of appropriate rules. It could be that today, instead of a spanking, it could be just a disapproval or withdrawal of certain privileges. I would make one more comment here. A wise parent will look to punishments and rewards that are intrinsic and meaningful. I recommend here a book called Punished by Rewards by Alfie Kahn. A very interesting book, Punished by Rewards. He shows in that book a lot of research, both in children and adults in the workplace, that when you reward people with extrinsic rewards, bonuses and money and, uh, and, and things that are extrinsic to the work itself, sometimes can be effective, but sometimes it can be a little demeaning and ineffective. When children feel the reward of the pride of a job well done, when workers feel that they contribute to the company in such a way that they share the benefits intrinsically and they're recognized for their value, that's much more healthy than giving extraneous bonuses which are completely unrelated to the work. There's nothing wrong with bonuses and the Rambam himself. Amadeus tells us that you can give a child sweets when they're small, or they have nice clothing. Absolutely. But it's part of a process that we hope to bring them through to where they feel a job well done is the greatest reward. Wow. Well. Just final question. Why did, in your opinion, why did we become more fragile? Is that because of the media or is there something else to it? You know, I think I must honestly say I don't really know. We do have a general notion of descent of the generations, that we become weaker. We move, as the Kabbalists would say, closer to the feet of the human form so that there's a breakdown in fiber. There's a breakdown in moral notions. There's a breakdown in, in many of these things. Probably some of them interact with each other to bring this about. I think that's a very interesting area for speculation, but I think there's no question that we are in many ways disintegrating. I'm not claiming that former generations were more moral necessarily, but we are going through a phase of particular challenges. You know, remember when you and I were back in the days when kids were threatened with a wooden ruler, 
There was clean language. The BBC would never be caught with any language that was inappropriate. Even the media, movies, etc. You know, today, absolutely not. Today, the newspapers in published published things on, on the public television and, and radio, there are things you definitely wouldn't want your child to hear very un, uncouth and vulgar. There's been a, a lowering of standards, the dignity of dress. You know, in your parents' generation, a man wouldn't appear in the street without a hat on. You know, even though it's not functional, it was a, a certain, certain dignity. Today, you can go to the opera in your pajamas with somebody's beer advertised across your chest. You know, there were times you could enter a restaurant without a suit and tie. So there's a certain self-respect and dignity that is more, some would say it's good because it's more relaxed. And that may be true as well. But I'd like to leave our listeners with this thought. One of the most beautiful aspects of a religious Jewish way of life is that we're not blown by the whims of the ages. You know, we have a certain set of values. Look at the world around us. They're blown from one extreme to another. You know, there was a, recently a situation where a person might express homosexual tendencies and it was outlawed and the most illegal and immoral thing. But today, we tend to the complete other extreme where gender itself is a completely free notion. So they're blowing in the winds, you know, of time. There was in, in my own field of medical ethics, there was a time when the doctor would be assumed to do anything to save the life of the patient. Today, we talk about helping people die by their own hand. So one of the beautiful aspects of a timeless system is that we look over 4,000 years of history where we've had solid values. Yes, we adjust with the times, of course. The Lachic process is sensitive to the times. That's part of its genius and its creativity. But we're always building on the same solid foundations that have stood the test of time. Thank you very much again, Rabbi Tetz, for the second part in this education series. Um, hopefully we'll be returning next week with a Q&A specifically on child raising. So please do send in your questions. And thank you very much again for joining us. Thank you.